0: All right, we're in Genesis 23. Genesis 23 this morning, going line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Genesis. And so we get to chapter 23, and it's a very peculiar passage. It's the kind of passage where if you get up in the morning and this is where your daily devotions are, you are likely scratching your head and turning to the Psalms and Proverbs for something you can understand more immediately. Because in Genesis 23, what we have is the death and the burial of Sarah. So it's going to be super fun. Welcome to church. We're talking about death again. Hope you have a good time. Sometimes you might wonder, why we talk so much about death at church? And it's because this is the time of the week where we get into the scriptures. We're just going through the scriptures, whatever they say, we say, right? It's not Mitch's words. It's not Mitch's message. It's not Mitch's ideas or Mitch's theology. We're just going through the scriptures and seeing what they tell us. And they tell us a lot about death because the scriptures are sufficient. What that means is the Bible doesn't waste any space. It gets to the point of things. Maybe you've noticed that. And one of the big points we need to consider about our existence is the fact that we will indeed die. And so the Bible spends a lot of time prepping us for that because we're going to spend a lot more time after death than before death. We're going to spend a lot more time in some place after this world than in this world. In fact, I'd say if you're not ready for death, you're not ready to live anyway. Amen? I mean, if you're, if you're not ready for the next life, you're probably not engaged in this one. If you're not focused on the end, you probably haven't even begun. And so the Bible tells us a lot about death that we might learn about life. And that's the case with Genesis 23. Here we have a story that is very, um, for probably for most of us, in 2021 on a first read. It's a little bland. It's a little, it's a little um, unfamiliar. It's like minutia. It's detailed. It's like we're leading, reading, rather, literally about the logistics of a funeral, And the buying of a burial plot. Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies. Abraham goes to the people of the land of Canaan who own all the land that he lives in as a nomad. And he negotiates with some landowners and he buys some property from them to bury Sarah. That's the chapter. That's chapter 23. But like all scripture, there is more in this than meets the eye. Like all scripture, that there is something inspired and there is something for us. And there is something that will never, that the Bible says that the, the word of God never ends. In other words, no matter what you read, where you read, in the scriptures, when you read it, it has something living and active for you to learn from that scripture. So like all scripture, this scripture, chapter 23, gives us plenty to learn and to relearn about life as we read through a story about Sarah's death. So let's dive in and see Sarah's death. We see this in verse 1 and verse 2. Genesis 23, 1 and 2, Sarah was 107 and 20 years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in a land whose name I cannot pronounce. You're welcome to uh, give that a shot on your own time. The same as Hebron in the land of Canaan, that's the big thing you need to know, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. I believe I have found the only true Twitter account. The only one that never is false, the only one that never lies. It is a Twitter account called Daily Death Reminder. You can follow it. It's at death underscore reminder on Twitter. It has 42,000 followers, and it puts out one tweet every 24 hours, and that tweet simply says over and over again, you will die someday. Now, I don't know who runs this Twitter account or why. They might want to see somebody, get some help. Sounds like they're struggling a little bit, (laughs) kind of a morbid Dude. But they are correct. And they are doing those 42,000 followers a favor by reminding them of this biblical truth that death is inevitable. In fact, that's part of the theme, not the whole theme. Redemption would be the entire theme, but part of the theme is death in the book of Genesis. We're introduced to death as a concept in Genesis 3. It is a result of the fall. It is a result of our sin. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. By one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. So death passed upon all men for all have Sinned. We all die. Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. And that's the appointment we all keep. Even if we live 127 years like Sarah did, eventually we come to an end. Through the ups, through the downs, through the turns, the ebb and the flow, it all ends one day. Even if we get 127 years like Sarah did, it ends. And it's grievous. Even if we get 127 years, which is a good long life, which is way... I mean, Social Security would be wanting us dead. It's like, man, how, they got way more than they paid into it somehow. Opposite of most people, right? Like, the, our, our, our health insurance probably wouldn't even cover us, right? Past 100, they're like, you're on your own, man. We don't know what you're doing, but don't tell anybody because you're costing us a fortune, Even in that good long life, we die and death is grievous. Verse 2 says that Abraham wept, that he spilt tears over Sarah. Actually, these are the first tears mentioned in the Bible. And tears are mentioned all the way throughout the rest of the Bible until Revelation, when in the new Jerusalem, God wipes away all tears from our eyes. Why does he wipe away all tears? Why is the last mention of tears, Revelation 21 in the New Jerusalem, it says, Because death shall be no more. Until then, we do have death, and thus we do have grief. One thing I want to communicate to you as a church this morning is that it is okay to grieve those that we have lost. Abraham here is a man of faith. He is the quintessential man of faith. He's the prototype of faith, yet he weeps. He grieves. Here's a question. Is that contradictory to have faith and to grieve? No. Grieving is spiritual. Our Lord Jesus himself lost a friend, Lazarus. He was dead for four days. Jesus came to his grave site, and the Bible says in its shortest verse, Jesus wept. Grieving is as spiritual as love is. Perhaps you've been around Christian culture enough to where you've been to a funeral and someone comes up and says, hey, just so you know, weeping is unnecessary. Grieving is unnecessary. Because of Jesus, we will see them again in heaven. Because of Jesus, they're happier now than they've ever been. And all that's true, except for the part where they said weeping and grieving is unnecessary. Weeping and grieving, that's not a bad thing that's a good thing. It doesn't mean you don't have faith. It means you did have love. I mean, think of all that Abraham and Sarah have been through up to this point. As, as as she passes on to the next world, think of all the memories he has. 127 years of memories, right? That is a long Instagram feed, my friend. That is a lot of ups and downs. I'm really glad that Abraham and Sarah that they were the couple God chose to be the example of a couple of faith. That's our example. Married couples, they are our example of a couple of faith. I'm glad it's them because of all their ups and all their downs. They were normal. It gives us some freedom to be normal rather than perfect. They weren't perfect, man. They had some downs. You remember that time Abraham tried to give his wife away to a king, and then he did it again? Like, dude, that is messed up. He was afraid the king was going to kill him because his wife was uh, too hot. (laughs) That's basically it, right? Oh, they're going to like you. They're going to kill me to date you. All right, she's my sister. You can date. I'm cool. Uh, That was literally, that's the story, right? He did that twice. There were some downs. There were some ups. You Remember when they had Isaac? Even though it it was a miracle, they were in their 90s, Right? They had uh, Isaac in their 90s, and they said it was so much grace. They laughed, and they laughed. into the night, ups and downs to this life this couple shared together, Abraham and Sarah, and now it has come to an end. And yes, it's a temporary end, but it is an end. And Abraham kneels down by his deceased, and he weeps, and he cries, and he grieves. And it's a good thing. He grieves because there was love not because there is regret. I think this is a good reminder for all of us married couples that we need to realize that these ups and downs will come to an end. It's a good reminder for married couples that we had a first day, the wedding day, and we will have indeed a last day. And in the in-between, we need to fight for as many ups as we can. We need to fight for as many good times as we can because at some point, one of the two of you will die. And you want that last day to be a day of grief because of time spent in love, not time wasted. Grief just means we loved. It's okay to grieve. It's normal to grieve. It's not necessarily an absence of faith. It's this presence of love. Sarah dies. Abraham weeps. The next thing he's got to do is plan the funeral. He's likely, in my imagination, going to gather all the servants together. They had many, Isaac, Lot, friends and family. They're going to get everybody together at the grave site of his wife, Sarah. Only problem is they don't have any burial plots. So Abraham is going to seek to buy the burial plots. And in his seeking of a burial plot, we see something very unique about Abraham and Sarah's life together. Before it ended, we see something very interesting about their identity. Check this out in verses three through six Abraham and Sarah's identity in life. It says, And Abraham stood up from before his dead, because there is a time where we got to move on. And he spake to the sons of Heth, those are the people that own the land, and he said, I am a stranger, very interesting, and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I may bury my dead. Out of my sight. And the children of Heth answered him, saying unto him, Hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us. Very interesting. In the choicest of our sepulchres, bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulchre, his tomb, his burial plot. What a fascinating little snippet of conversation the Bible records for us. I want to dig into this. Turn to Hebrews 11 the same text that Paige read for us earlier, turn to Hebrews 11. Because in this conversation, this short conversation, we see something huge about the life of Abraham and Sarah. And I want to make sure we hit this today, because Sarah's now dead, and Abraham's dying in a couple chapters, spoiler alert. Okay? And so I want to make sure we hit this, because it's a big part of their life, and it's a big part of the lesson we learn from their life. Okay? So you might have noticed in this conversation, Abraham calls himself one thing, And the sons of Heth call him another. Did you notice this? In this conversation, Abraham calls himself a stranger. That's the idea of a foreigner, a sojourner. This is someone who is really just coming to visit. He refers to himself as an exile. He refers to himself basically as a pilgrim, right? Someone who's there on a visa. Someone who's there for a short while. Someone who's there and he's staying in tents, nomadic, not a landowner, permanent homeowner, citizen. But the sons of Heth, when they reply to him, They say, no, 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 you're like a mighty prince. Bury your dad wherever you want. No one's going to be able to stop you. Now, here's a question. Who's right? Well, they're both right. But Abraham is more right. And that's important for us to know. See, Abraham and Sarah are ending their life together because she is now passed on. They are no longer married. And the sons of Seth see a prince bearing a princess because Abraham does have a lot. Right? A lot of times we think of Abraham as sort of, because he's nomadic and dwells in tents, we see him almost as um, sort of a homeless guy. But really, Abraham is like a mighty prince. He has cattle. He has servants. He has an army. We checked that out in uh, chapter 14, 300 in his army, his own personal army. Savage. I love it. Uh, The mobile farm he could take wherever he goes. Remember back in chapter 13, him and Lot get to this new land and they have to split up between the two of them. There's too much farming to kind of have on the same land. So, this is a guy who has wealth. So, there is the sense in which they're right. He's like a prince. But Abraham has a totally different view of himself, he has a totally different identity and that he says hey we didn't spend our lives together for this world as a prince of this world a princess but rather we're here as pilgrims Hebrews 11:8 it says by faith Abraham when he was called to go out into a place where he should after receive foreign inheritance he obeyed and went out not knowing where he was going I mean could you imagine Sarah on that day your husband comes home from work he's like I heard from the Lord She's like, great. What'd he say? He said to start moving, pack up, get the U-Haul. Where are we going? That he left out. That's a tough day for a wife, isn't it? Right? You want to be a good wife. You want to follow your husband's lead and your husband doesn't know where he's going. Some of you don't comment, don't elbow, don't tap, don't text your friend. Some of you are there right now. right? He's trying to lead, doesn't know where he's going. What if he's trying to lead, he doesn't know where he's going? Because the Lord... Told him to go without knowing. That's what they said. That's what God did. He came to Abraham, came to him and said, you're going to possess a new land, a land foreign to here. You are going to go into this land of Canaan, far from your home in South Babylon. And that is going to be the land of you and your sons and your sons' sons and your ancestors and your descendants and all the people that come after you in your family. It's going to be the nation of Israel. It's going to be this great thing. But I'm not going to tell you where it is until you get there. He had to go out by faith. Finally, by faith, he pilgrims to the land of Canaan. And him and Sarah live there in tents for a long time. It is never, though, their home. They are in tents, no land that they own themselves. Their status is one of an immigrant. And now that one of them is dead, Abraham says, it's time for us to buy some land because the pilgrimage is over, at least for Sarah. We've got to bury her, and we've got to bury her here. Her pilgrimage has come to an end. That's very interesting. Now that Sarah is dead, now that Sarah has died, Abraham is saying, now she's home. This is how God has called us to live, isn't it? 1 Peter 2, Christians, he says, you're strangers and Pilgrims, Jesus, our Lord that we follow, said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Colossians says, set your minds on things above, not on things of earth. We are to see ourselves as exiles who are just passing through this world onto another home. Like Abraham and Sarah saw themselves. Look at Hebrews 11, 9. Hebrews 11:9. by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as if he was in a strange country. So he's in the land that's promised to him. One day his descendants are going to live there, but he's living there as if he is currently a foreigner. He's dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of that same promise. For he looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God. Very interesting. Good on to verse 13. These, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all died in faith, not having received the promises, but saw them afar off, way into the future. They were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. Verse 16. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he hath prepared for them a city." This is amazing, is it not? I mean, this is an amazing concept. This is an amazing text. This is an amazing part of Abraham's and Sarah's identity in life. This is amazing that God would say this about someone, anyone, but especially someone so far back, 4,000 plus years, back into the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. Literally, Abraham and Sarah lived as pilgrims in the land of Canaan. And they knew one day their descendants would be numerous, like the sand of the sea, stars of the sky, and that those descendants would possess this land, the land they're right now in. They would own it. This would be their country. And they had one eye on that. We see that later in this story even. But they have their eye on something even beyond that. They had their eye on heaven On the new Jerusalem, before the first Jerusalem was even settled. You see, in Sarah's death, she's finally home. So now Abraham can buy some land. Abraham and Sarah are this prototype of living a life of faith, okay? They're the father and the mother of faith. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 51, 1 and 2, that they are the rock from which we are cut, The Bible tells us in Isaiah 51, 1 and 2 that they are the quarry out of which we are dug. 1 Peter 3 tells all the ladies that are Christians to follow Sarah because she's the example of a godly lady. So they are this prototype. And what they are is this prototype of people who are living in this world, but not of this world. They are a prototype of people who are storing up for themselves treasures in heaven. They are a prototype of someone who knows they may not see all of God's promises fulfilled in this life. Just like we may not. God promises to send Jesus back to earth. There is a second coming. And we may die before we see that exact promise fulfilled. But Abraham and Sarah are this prototype of someone who knows they may not see all the promises of God fulfilled in this lifetime, but... They will see the one who made the promises in the next lifetime. And this is the attitude that we are all to take. As Christians, we do not live like princes and princesses who spend all their time, all their treasure, all their talent building up a kingdom on this earth, in this world. We are rather to see ourselves more like pilgrims heading home. We are to spend our time on things that will not benefit us in this exact moment. But we are to spend time on things that will benefit eternity. We are to spend our treasure, our money, on more than just things that will make this world more comfortable for us. We are to spend our treasure on more than just the here and now. We're to spend our treasure on things and give our money to things that will affect and benefit eternity one day, though we cannot see it yet. We are not to use our talents to work for our own fame and fortune, but rather we are to use our talents to bring someone to Jesus and thus into heaven out there somewhere one day. That's the life Abraham and Sarah modeled for us. And that's the life you're called to. Too many of you are trying to make heaven on earth rather than spend time on earth prepping for heaven. Amen? We're doing that. I'm doing that. We struggle. You see, you can be a pilgrim or a prince, but you can't be both. Abraham picked pilgrim. I want you to know this, that we will only and I we will only live as a pilgrim if we truly believe that that world is better than this one. Do you really believe that? I know you can't see that world. I hear you. Neither can I. There's not a whole lot even in the Bible about that world. There is some. Jesus is there. But there's not like some great detail. We have all the details of this world. We don't have all the details of that world. I hear you. But we have got to sometime, someday, if we're going to follow Jesus, believe that the place He ascended to is better than the place He came to redeem from sin. Do we believe that that world is way more satisfying than this one? Let me tell you, to you this way. You, you should believe this because here's the, there, this is a hard truth, but here is the truth. If you live for this world, you will never get what you want. It'll never, ever, ever be enough. This world will, you can get as much fortune, much fame, much prestige, as much power as you want, and it will never satisfy you. Some of you, you think if all your dreams came true, you'd be happy. If all your dreams came true, you'd wake up tomorrow with new dreams. I have everything I wanted when I was 23. Now I'm 33. And you know what I want? More. That's what I want. Because my heart is never filled with anything here. Most people do not know this. In fact, right now, there is this huge wave of science called immortality science. This is real. Two guys in particular, Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, Larry Page, co-founder of Google, they right now are spending billions, with a B, investing billions of dollars into their own companies, these medical firms they're creating. One's called Altos Labs and one's called Calico. They've hired all these Nobel peace-winning scientists to come together and study the cell in such a way as to develop a medicine that reduces aging to the point where they could live forever. They're literally trying to buy the only thing you can get as a free gift, eternal life. They're spending billions on something a four-year-old with no paycheck could have for free if they will humble themselves, but they will not humble themselves because they want this world. They want to live forever. But this is why the Bible says that the wisdom of man is foolish. They want to live forever here. Have you not turned on a TV? Right, you want to live forever, Where? New Jerusalem? No, this Jerusalem. Do I need to pull up CNN? what you want to live forever in a COVID-infested, war criminal-run, basically gang-run world, where the craziest people get famous, and the same people are called, whatever, you know, the worst. And where everything is upside down, and yet, okay, let's say you buy an extra 200 years. What happens when you get hit by a Greenville driver who doesn't know what a yellow light is? You want to do it all here? You'll never get what you want. Because of sin, but someone has come to pay for sin, someone has come to redeem sin, and someone has come to be a door to a better world. Jesus said, I am that door. And I'm here to tell you that if you live for the world to come, you will get what you want. If you seek a heavenly city, you'll find it. If you pass everything on to heaven, you'll see it again. Those who lay up treasures in heaven, they honor God. Verse 16 of Hebrews 11 says, he's not ashamed to be their God. Some of the least comfortable among us are the most glorifying to God. That's why verse 16 says, so he has made for them a city. And we know from Revelation, the New Testament of the Bible, way past Genesis, that this place is called the New Jerusalem. It's heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. And I want you to understand that living for the new heaven and the new earth, living for the new Jerusalem is not a waste of time. It is a real place. It is a place prepared for you, Jesus says. It is a place that Jesus died so that we might live there. He rose again that we might ascend there. Oh, what a city it is. Revelation 21.10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as Crystal. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall were adorned with every kind of jewel, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carnelian, crystal, topaz, amethyst. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty." And the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. We are going to heaven. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That is a place worth fighting for. That is a place to lay our treasure. That's a place we spend our time for, our treasure for, our talents for. This is where we're going. This is where Abraham and Sarah were headed. This is where Sarah is at. She's home. Establish your identity as a sojourner. That's what Abraham and Sarah were. Be a pilgrim. Reject the attitude of a prince who spends all his time in his treasure any way he wants. That's what they thought Abraham was. But indeed, that is the furthest thing from the truth. So we've seen that Sarah has this Last breath, she dies. Abraham's getting ready to bury Sarah. And in that conversation, we see their identity in life. And now we see the story finish up. And then we see Abraham's faith extends past his life. In fact, Abraham's faith extends past his death into future generations. Right? So Abraham comes to the sons of Heth. And he says, I'd like to buy some land so I can bury my dead. They say, bury you wherever you want. No one's going to stop you. You're super rich, super powerful. Nobody's going to do anything. He says, no, no, no. I really need to buy some land. He's going to insist on buying some land to bury his dead. And he's going to enter into this negotiation to make a very expensive purchase of this land. And we'll discuss why. We'll discuss his motivation. But let's check it out. Starting in verse 7. Read this along with me. It's It's a hoot. Look at this. And Abraham stood up, and he bowed himself to the people of the land, even the children of Heth, And he communed with them saying, if it be in your mind that I should bury my dead, hear me, and entreat for me this particular guy, the son of Zoar, Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he hath, which is in the end of his field, for as much money as it's worth, he shall give it to me for a possession of a burying place Amongst you. So Abraham says, no, 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 I want to buy land. In fact, Abraham wants a very particular land. It's this field with a cave. A guy named Ephron owns it. So look at verse 10. Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth. And Ephron, the Hittite, answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth. Look at verse 11. My Lord, hear me. The field I give thee. And the cave that is therein, I give it thee. Okay, verse 12, look down at verse 12. Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. And he spake to Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, If thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me, I will give thee money for the field. Okay, verse 14. Ephron answered Abraham, said unto him, My lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. And what is that between me and thee? Verse 16, Abraham hearkened to the voice of Hephron, and Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver, which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, current money with the merchants. Now go down to verse 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, the same as Hebron in that promised land, the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is therein were made sure unto Abraham for a possession of a burying place as a cemetery by the sons of Heth. (sighs) Anybody else need a water break, right? Need a second just to process this. Let me explain some of this, because you might be wondering, why all this detail for a land deal? I mean, Abraham's greatest victory was in the last chapter, where he you know, almost sacrificed his son Isaac. That was about 20 verses. Here we have 20 verses in chapter 23 about a deed for some dirt in a cave. So what's the deal with all this detail? Detail. All right, what's going on with this? Well, let me tell you this. First of all, practically speaking, this is how ancient deals were made. In fact, this is one really cool way that we know the historicity, if that's a word, of the Bible, how we know it's accurate historically because we found other documents that have land deals from this time period in them, and it was just like this. Here's the big idea. This was how you did it. The polite thing was that the first person offered the land for free. Okay, so the seller says, it's yours, take it. Now, that's a false humility. Now, it's agreed upon false humility, but it's a false humility that doesn't mean to take it. If you take it, they'll all pull out their spears and you'll die, okay? And they'll offer you up to their gods or whatever, okay? The idea is when they said, it's yours, take it, that was them saying, it is for sale. It's indeed available. Okay. So then the buyer was supposed to refuse to take it for free. So this all looks like it's just Abraham being Abraham and wanting to pay for stuff. It's not. This was actually the polite way to say what's your asking price, right? Refuse to buy it for free. Then the seller would say something like this. What's 400 shekels between you and me? Right, what's 400, and that's what he says, what's 400 shekels between you and me? And that was sort of the, the seller's way of, of the asking price. And what was supposed to happen was the buyer would say, I know, right? Right, we're, we're, we go way back. We, I think we dated the same girl in high school. Somehow we have a mutual cousin, but we're not related. And, you know, what's 300 shekels between you and me? And that was the counteroffer. And the guy came back and he's like, I hear you. I love you dude. I was in your wedding. I was I gave the best toast. It was the worst toast, but he doesn't know that. It was the best toast. I was in your wedding, and what's 350 shekels between friends like us, right? And this is how you haggled to an agreed-upon price in front of everybody so that you could actually make the deal. What's actually really weird about this land deal isn't all the detail. It's this one thing that he says, what's 400 shekels between you and me? And Abraham just starts weighing out 400 shekels. He doesn't haggle at all. He's going to pay full price, and this is an extreme price. Like extreme, I don't know if you've seen 400 shekels of silver lately, but you could go to Bojangles for a year off that, okay? Like it's a lot of money. You might even be able to take a couple trips down to the Cheesecake Factory. We're not sure if it's that much money, but it's a lot of money, okay? 400 shekels of silver. I mean, for context, Abraham, not Abraham, but David rather, when he buys the threshing floor for the temple in 2 Samuel 24, that was only 50 shekels for the temple, This dude's buying a gravesite, 400 shekels, but Abraham cashes it out. Likely, there's a couple reasons. One, he might be doing this so that nobody can throw shade on this deal. He doesn't want them to think he's twisting their arm. He doesn't want this to, you know, somehow come back to haunt him. He wants to pay the full price in front of everybody so people can see that he won it and bought it fair and square. That's probably one reason he's gonna pay this price. Another reason he's paying this price, buying all this land, is to preserve the faith of the future generations of his family. Now you gotta do some thinking with me here. I know it's a long sermon. I hear you. Get what you pay for it. This sermon's free. All right. This is not the best, but let me just let's think about this. Let's dive into this. Go with me on this, okay? If you think about it, this is a highly unusual land deal. This is a highly unusual thing for your first piece of property to buy as a foreigner to be your burial plot, okay? Like, think about that. What if you hosted a foreign exchange student? Someone comes in from Spain. They're gonna study at a high school here in Greenville. The first day they're in town, they say, take me around Greenville. And you they're taking them around, you're showing them all the you're showing them the bridge, you're showing them Falls Park, and they're like, Hey, can we see uh can we see a cemetery? You're like, uh sure, we're gonna go during the day because you're freaking me out. But yeah, let's go see a cemetery. You go see a cemetery, and they wanna stop in at the office, and this foreign exchange student stops in at the office, and like, I need to buy a few burial plots here in Greenville. It's like, you are from Spain. What do you, what? This is the last place you should buy your burial plot. I mean, this is the opposite of how things normally go, isn't it? It's very unusual, right? Typically, people would buy... Land for a house, then maybe land for a business, and then later, after they've established their homestead, land for a gravesite. This is particularly unusual for ancient times, and this time what would have been normal for Abraham to do was to take Sarah's body back to South Babylon, where they are from, and to bury her there essentially for free around her ancestors back home. Yet, Abraham doesn't do the normal thing. He does something unusual, and he makes this huge, expensive deal out of burying her here. And what's more is he doesn't just buy land for one burial, right? Uh, You can't probably tell from the text. uh, Neither could I without a commentary. We're not ancient geographers, okay? But this is a ton of land. This is a pretty massive plot of land. It's definitely way bigger than just what you would need to bury one lady, So why is he making a big deal out of burying Sarah here? And why is he buying so much land, so much so that it could be a burying place, like multiple people, like he's buying a cemetery? Well, it turns out that Abraham has his self and his future descendants, many of which he doesn't even know yet, in mind. As you unfold the book of Genesis, as you read the rest of the book of Genesis, this very plot of land comes up again and again and again. Isaac and Rebekah will be buried here. Jacob and Leah will be buried here. Joseph, the very last chapter of the book, in chapter 50, he's down in Egypt. And Joseph, before he dies, writes out specific instructions to take his bones back to this cave and bury me there. What is going on with this plot of land? Here's the idea. Abraham buys this plot of land as a tangible way for his future generations, his future family to receive and believe the promises of God to them. Even though It will take 400 plus years for those promises to see their fulfillment. Remember, for Abraham and his descendants, the promise was that one day this land that he's a stranger in will be their land. That one day through this land, there would come a serpent crushing son. We now know him as Jesus of Nazareth. That one day from this land, redemption for the whole world would be made possible. That's the promise of God. This, however, is Genesis. They don't possess the land until the book of Joshua, hundreds of years later. But for hundreds of years, they have these burial plots in Canaan. Their family line, their lineage, that nation of Israel has this little piece of the bigger puzzle, this this stake in Canaan for themselves. To prove to them, to remind them that this land is theirs by the promise of God one day. So think of the person who's writing Genesis 23. Because Abraham's not writing about Abraham. This book is written by a guy named Moses. Why is Moses writing 23 this way? And he's including all this massive detail. It's because Moses, as you remember, is the one who led the people 400 years later out of Egypt the Exodus, the second book of the Bible. He leads them out of Egypt across the Red Sea that was split. They go by on dry land. And where are they going? They're going to Canaan. And on the way to Canaan, they're going to face giants, and they're going to face cities with high walls, and they're going to face battles and starvation and all these things. And Moses is telling them to have faith. He's saying, your father Abraham believed the promise of God for you enough to buy a burial plot in this land he was a foreigner in, knowing that you would, by God's grace and by God's power, come into this land and have it one day. So he's literally saying, if Abraham believed it, you can as well. Literally, Abraham, by buying this plot of land, is making a move that will one day ensure his future generations, his future family, that they can believe the promises of God like he did. He is making it as easy as possible for future generations to hear and believe, to receive and believe, and then to pass down the promises of God to them. So here's the big lesson for us, and it's something we rarely think about, that we today are living in such a way that will either make it easier or harder for the next generation to believe the promises of God, which for us under the new covenant is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each generation is responsible to receive the gospel and then to live in such a way as to pass that gospel down in tangible ways, seeable ways, feelable ways to the next generation until Jesus returns. There are moves, we, you and I, there are moves that we have to make now, knowing we may not even see the end result. We may not even see the fruit before we die. But we have to make moves now, taking responsibility to set things in motion so that the next generation receives and believes The gospel, the fact that Jesus is God, Jesus loves us, he came to earth, lived the perfect sinless life, died in our place for our sins, rose again, sent the Spirit, that we might not stay in our burial plot too long. That message must be believed and passed by each generation. Even if they don't see the end result. Abraham doesn't see Jacob and he doesn't see Joseph and he doesn't see Moses and he doesn't see physically the people that are his descendants, Israel, come into the land. But he was believing that it would happen from a distance and he was making it easier for them to believe when the time came by giving them a plot of land that they would receive later on. You've got to do things that you will not see the end of right now, but that you'll see the end of someday. eternity. You know, I think about actually, I think about the guy who witnessed to my grandfather, Sarge. You all know Sarge, one of our deacons here. He's my grandpa. He was working at the Pentagon in the Air Force, and I think it was his office, like someone above him, so he couldn't really tell him no, was saying, hey, you need Jesus. And he kept telling him. And eventually, my grandpa got saved. Now, the guy who witnessed to Sarge didn't know he was also witnessing to my dad, who witnessed to me, And now I share the gospel with Alden every day. He never had met Alden. Alden wasn't born. I wasn't born back when that guy was witnessing to Sarge, my grandfather. But what that guy was doing was he was making a move in that moment that would make it easier for future generations to receive and believe the gospel. We have to be making those same moves I have to be living in such a way that not only does Alden receive the gospel, but my grandkids and my great-grandkids hear and receive the gospel. I want you to understand this morning that you are on the hook. If you're going to live a faith-filled life like Abraham and Sarah, you are on the hook for the nieces and the nephews and the cousins and the second cousins and the grandkids and the neighborhood kids for generations to come to receive, believe, and pass on the gospel. What moves are you making? What are you writing? What are you creating? What are you building so that the next generation receives and believes and passes on the gospel? We don't think like this very often, do we? Because we are so incredibly self-centered. We are obsessed with ourselves. We, liter- we are individualistic, self-identifying, self-aggrandizing. We don't know our great-great-grandma's name. We don't think about seven generations from now. But part of the point of Genesis is to get us to think like a biblical, Jesus-loving, other-serving patriarch or matriarch who is doing things that affect not only the future in this world, but the future in the world to come. After all, you have benefited from someone in the past generation making it easier for you to believe the promises of God. That's true for all of you in here this morning. I mean, if you are sitting in this church, you are benefiting from people who don't know you and that you will never know who worked hard to make this happen. This church was organized in 1936, reorganized, I believe it was, in 1968. Somewhere in the middle there, I think it was 1958, they built this building. And they worked, and they labored, and they preached, and they gave. And they spent time, and they served so that the next generation could hear, believe, receive, and pass on the gospel. And they never even got to live to meet most of you. There's a couple people here still from the last generation of this church. But most of the people in the last generation of this church never met us. But yet all their labor has benefited us so that we could hear the gospel every Sunday right here in this room and right here in this neighborhood. The apostles were supposed to be the witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. Most of them died before they got out of Jerusalem, before they got out of Israel. But yet they passed the gospel on to the generation after them and after them and after them. It's been 2,000 years since the days of the first church and the apostles. And now the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth because this is how God works. This is something we don't think about, but this is something Christianity has put us on the hook for, that we are to be preparing this place and all the other places we're connected to. We're preparing them for the next generation to easily be able to hear, receive, and pass down the gospel. So here are some closing questions for us. What can you do today to live like a pilgrim rather than a prince? What can you spend time on today that will not probably benefit you immediately, but that will affect eternity? What can you spend your treasure on that may not build up your kingdom now, but will build his kingdom there? What can you do today to make it easier for the next generation to receive the promises of God and to believe the promises of God and come to the faith that you have right now? These are lessons about life from the death of Sarah. I'm going to go ahead and say a word of prayer for us, and then we're going to worship this God of generations, this God who already knows the name of your kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids, this God who already loves them and wants them to come to faith and wants you to play a part in that. We will think about these things, we will pray about these things, and we will sing about these things for the rest of our service. Jesus, thank you for Father Abraham and Mother Sarah. Thank you for their faith, their life of faith, their example of faith that teaches us so much. Jesus, thank you for the fact that you let us see their ups and their downs so that we can know that even in our sin and even in our failures, there's hope for us to be men and women of God. Jesus, I pray that I would make it easier for the next generation to receive, believe, and pass on the gospel. I pray that we as a church would make it easier for us to make it easier for the next generation to receive and believe and to pass on the gospel. I pray that... You would. Help us to stop thinking of ourselves alone, but to think of a future like Abraham did. And help us to stop thinking of this world, but to think of the future world like Abraham did. Thank you for these lessons. May we apply them now. May we worship the God who gave them to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will stand and sing, we, or to sing, we will be singing 540 in the hymnal, I Run to Christ, 540.